It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak to young people. I appreciate it very much. I do it a lot the reasons that you have articulated. I, um, I hope to inspire people to try to follow um, this path because I love this country. Because I love the law. Because I think it is important that we all invest in our future. And the young people are the future. And so I want them to know that they can do and be anything. And I'll just say that um, I will tell them what uh, an anonymous person said to me once. I was walking through Harvard Yard, my freshman year. As I mentioned, I went to uh, public school and I didn't know anything about Harvard until um, my debate coach took me there to enter a speech competition. And I thought, this is a great university. It was basically one of the only ones I'd seen. And I said, maybe I'll apply when I'm a senior. But I get there and whoa, <laughs> so different. I'm from Miami, Florida. Boston is very cold. Um, it was um, it was rough. It was different from anything I'd known. There were lots of students there who were um, prep school kids like my husband, <laughs> um, who knew all about <laughs> knew all about Harvard, and, and that was not not me. And I think the first semester I was really homesick. I was really questioning, um, do I belong here? Can I, can I make it in this environment? And I was walking through the yard in the evening and a black woman I did not know was passing me on the sidewalk. And she looked at me and I guess she knew how I was feeling. And she leaned over as we crossed and said, persevere. I would tell them to persevere. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams. That was a clip of soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. I'm sure by now you've heard that clip many, many times. And so many of us can share stories of how you were uplifted or received a word of advice, a hug, or any other warming gesture to validate that you belonged in the space that you were walking in at the time. And not just physically, but also spiritually, emotionally, it can be 
taxing, having the qualifications sometimes overqualified for where you are and to be seen and for someone to encourage you at that moment is is definitely needed. The universe knows what you need when you need it. And I wanted to play that clip because it is so relevant to the conversation we're going to have on the show today. Later in the show, I'll be joined by the founder of Generation Hope and the author of Pregnant Girl, a story of teen motherhood, college, and creating a better future for young families. Judge Jackson's remarks at the top of the show that I played at the top of the show were in response to what she would tell a young person. And she said she would tell them to persevere. And that is exactly the message that our guest, Nicole Lynn Lewis, is spreading through her work to support teen parents and their young families. Now, some of you may have grown up like me, (laughs) where as soon as you got your period, you were told, don't get pregnant. And for some guys, you were also told, don't bring no babies in this house. (laughs) In addition to that message, you may have also seen for those who did get pregnant that they were shunned, maybe sent down south or shamed. If you were in church, you had to be sat down. You couldn't sing in the choir, couldn't participate in things. And sometimes resulting in them not only leaving school, not being around their friends and loved ones, because they didn't, families didn't want that public reminder of their child's act. Obviously, there's a lot of trauma centered around all of that, not only for the parent, the teen parent, but also the child that would be born into that environment. In addition to what our families, communities, and faith institutions may have done or said, there were also what larger society and the government said, and that's local state government (laughs) have said and done to create that level of shame. At a certain point, teenage pregnancy became a domestic policy issue that politicians determined needed fixing. Here's former President Bill Clinton on the matter during his 1995 State of the Union address. We've got to ask our community leaders and all kinds of organizations to help us stop our most serious social problem, the epidemic of teen pregnancies and births where there is no marriage. I have sent to Congress a plan to target schools all over this country with anti-pregnancy programs that work. But government can only do so much. Did you hear that? (laughs) He described it as our most serious social problem. Really? In 1995, when the overall rate of teenage childbearing was like not even more than half of what it had been like in the 50s or 60s or something like that. Not only did presidents going back to Jimmy Carter think teenage pregnancy was a serious problem, the general public did too. It was documented in polls during that time where people listed it high as an issue, a domestic policy issue that needed to be addressed. Now, sometimes it's all hyperbole and other times it's not when some issues rise to such a level that it requires government intervention. Government can decide to step in on an issue if there is public outcry, if media joins in on the chorus, and most definitely when politicians and others in power believe that an issue warrants government intervention. Teenage pregnancy is one of those issues, and that's what we're going 
going to be discussing today when we come back after this break. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, Eljoy Williams, and joining us at the front of the class is Nicole Lynn Lewis. She is the founder of Generation Hope, a nonprofit organization that surrounds motivated teen parents and their children with mentors, emotional support, and financial resources that they need to thrive in college. And in kindergarten, because we're going to surround the whole family. She's also the author of Pregnant Girl, a story of teen motherhood, college, and creating a better future for young families. Welcome to the front of the class, Nicole Lynn Lewis. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Well, I have all sorts of questions and theories and things to discuss with you. Uh, So hopefully I don't run out of time because I've been thinking about this question and I mentioned this earlier at the top of the show. You know, I had a thought a couple of years ago about like, when did teenage pregnancy become like a problem um, that needed to be solved and, and particularly solved and became like a political football and, you know, racialized and all these other kind of things. And so I want to, you know, talk to you all about that. But before we get there, since this is your first time on the show, I'm going to start where we begin with all of our guests by you telling us the story of your first civic action. Yeah, so my first civic action, um, I would really take it back to, and I hope this counts, but I was raised um, in a household where we talked a lot about race. Um, We talked a lot about our history and the civil rights movement and reconstruction and slavery. Um, My my father is black, my mother's white, and they got married just a few years after the Loving versus Virginia um, case made, um, you know, banning interracial marriage illegal throughout the United States. And um, so it was just a topic that we that we talked about all the time. And uh, didn't really realize that that kind of made us unique in that way. But but it was something that that we didn't shy away from. I was raised with my father sitting me down watching Eyes on the Prize. I um, usually watched it around Black History Month every year. And so I feel like my first civic engagement started really young just in seeing um, how people fought, you know, Black people fighting for the right to vote. Uh, the images of the the Selma march, you know, the images of uh, the sit-ins at the counters and the ketchup drizzling down their their faces and um, being yelled at just for the right to vote, being thrown in jail. And so I think I always knew because that was so much a part of my childhood, I always knew that voting was a big deal and voting was a big deal, particularly for Black people. Um, and so I... From a young age, my mom was taking me to the to to to, to go vote. Um, I was always with her. And what I do remember distinctly about going to vote with her was, as a working mom, how hard it was for her to get to the um, the voting station before it closed. That was like 
it was so difficult. It was hard for her to get to me from the to get me from daycare in time. Never mind getting me from daycare and getting to uh, to where she had to vote. And so I distinctly remember one just the context for voting, um, and also how hard it was for her as a mom, as a working mother, to get to go and cast her ballot, and how important that was. How it it was so important that it was worth rushing and you know getting everything together, picking me up and taking me with her to the, to, to go uh, cast her vote. So. I wish more people when they're in the room, making policy decisions, when they are reformatting education, work, employment, things like that, that there would be more people at the table considering those who are working parents and what they will need to do in order to participate in said thing. Yeah. If I'm at work and my husband at work, like who's supposed to How like, do that? And if school is until 2.15 or 2.20, what's going to happen between the 2.20 and the 5 o'clock when I get off and then the hour it takes me to come back? <laughs> like what is... Right, like, like help me connect the dots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely fill that out. So as you mentioned it, like when I'm thinking about whether it's early voting hours or other things, I'm like, okay, you know, how can the working parent and just thinking about the movement of your town or your city, if most people work at the warehouse and shift ends at seven, but the poll sites close at seven, like how people who work that shift going to get to oh. like... I'm going to need y'all to work. I'm going to need y'all to figure right. it out. <laughs> Think about when voting rights are under attack right now, right? In so many states, um, making it even harder, you know, for people. And it's just, um, you know, I distinctly remember the mad rush that we had to make uh, to get to the polling place to actually cast that important vote. And it shouldn't be this frantic frenzy. It shouldn't be something that's unrealistic for working working folks and working parents. It's just, it, we make it really hard. Mm, yeah. So let's get to our conversation because I talked about this at the beginning of the show of when uh, teenage pregnancy became a public policy issue. And I lifted up some clips of Bill Clinton talking about teenage pregnancy, Lyndon Johnson, others. And when the question came to me, it was because I was talking to older family members who had gotten married or gotten pregnant very young. And it wasn't, they got married at 14 and 15. And I was like, well, that wasn't a problem that to get married or even to have children at that point in time. So when did we get to a point where the don't bring no ki- no babies home <laughs> like became a moral conversation in families to an issue that the United States president would need to address it in a state of the union address. When when did we get to that point? And because I'm a nerd, I then went down the rabbit hole and found research and stories. I think it's Frank Furstenberg, who's done like the most detailed analysis of this as a, a public policy issue. Nicole, in your view, when did it become a, quote, problem? And give us a little teaser that your book, Pregnant Girl, talks about, about the things we the, the things we need to do in order to support 
those teen, and I'm going to say parents in general, because it's, it's two people that create. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that parent umbrella because so, so often we, we don't include fathers in this discussion, but I think, you know, I love that you're asking that question. I think uh, we need more people asking that question and really being curious about when did this, uh, the, the teen pregnancy conversation kind of emerge as a crisis and really get thrust into the spotlight um, by, by presidents, uh, you know, along the way. Um, you know, I got pregnant in the 90s, um, in the late 90s. And when I got pregnant, and I talk about this in my book, Pregnant Girl, I thought that teen pregnancy rates were at their highest. I, I thought that teen pregnancy was at this crisis point, that they had, the rates had been skyrocketing. Um, because that's what the messaging was everywhere I turned. Media, um, just normal kind of daily conversation, conversation with teachers. Um, it was it was painted as being at a crisis point. What I realized in in you know doing this work over the years is that actually when I became pregnant, teen pregnancy rates were on the decline and had been on the decline decline since their peak, which was actually in the 1950s. So your conversations with older folks who are talking about pre teen pregnancy, who are talking about getting married young, really that was all happening at higher rates in the 1950s. So then there is this question of, you know, if teen pregnancy rates were on the decline, why were we being told that it was at this really critical breaking point um, and it needed to be dealt with um, this huge problem? And what is you peel back the layers, and I think you talked about Clinton and you talked about Lyndon B. Johnson and Reagan has to be tossed into this conversation. There were so many things converging at the same time. You had teen pregnancy rates going down. But what was rising was um, single motherhood. And you had uh, women who were not getting married at the same rate that they were in the 1950s. And there's all sorts of reasons for that and the introduction of um, different kinds of birth control and things like that. But um, it really became, that's what made it become a crisis because there was this feeling like we have single motherhood and that's a problem. The easy target for that problem were teen mothers, young mothers. Um, and you had, um, different reforms, different political agendas, uh, that were being, um, really trying to be pushed forward, um, looking at, um, reforming the welfare system that was all happening at that time. Uh, Reagan on his campaign trail was, was really introducing the black welfare queen as this villain and the reason that the welfare system had to be reformed. Um, all of these things kind of converging at the same time created an opportunity to really target teen pregnancy as a national crisis in order to push certain policies that were going to make it incredibly difficult for Black and Brown single mothers to have the resources that they need to survive and to thrive. Um, so it definitely, there was, there was a political agenda at hand, and that's what I really try to help people understand in Pregnant Girl. You know, it's my story of getting pregnant as a young um, as a young, uh, I was in high school, I was a, a senior in high school when I got pregnant. Uh, but it's also about the larger context for my story of teen pregnancy. It's about um, what we all need to understand about how complex this issue is, how it's mixed up in race and gender and bias and poverty, um, and, and helping people to understand the way forward and really providing a blueprint for how do we do better by young families? How do we do better by parenting college students? What should we all be working towards? 
You know, I remember one of the things that's like imprinted in my brain. I remember being in my room playing with my Teddy Rupskin. And <laughs> wow, you took it back. Listen, okay, this is how much of an imprint it is in my brain, okay? I had been at, like, I had been, like, I was, like, so enthralled with this Teddy Rubskin, finally got it, and I'm in my room, minding my little business, playing with Mr. Teddy Rubskin, and my aunt um, had come downstairs to talk to my grandmother, and they closed the door, which was abnormal because my grandmother rarely closed her door. And so you hear mumblings and I'm like, mm, something serious must be happening, but I don't care because me and Teddy Rupskin yes, are having the time me. of our life. The next thing you know, I hear mama, no, mama, no. And my aunt comes out of the room. My grandmother is like behind her and running. She was like, I can't believe you've done this and this and whatever. And then my grandmother grabs Teddy Rupskin and proceeds to do a black mama situation with my aunt and my Teddy Rubskin had never played things correctly <laughs> after that. So that further cemented in my brain, right? I heard the conversations of my grandmother, my aunts and others telling the older teenagers, right? Don't bring no babies home, yeah. do this or whatever. But it cemented in my brain that there will be shame upon you if this happens and in your book really highlight him grab it from my shelf because in chapter nine of your book um you talk about shame yeah. as this effective way that governments institutions, churches, people in general, families have used shame to handle teenage pregnancy and particularly bringing up the fact, I think here in New York City, one of the agencies had this campaign that was on bus shelters and all over New York City that used the pictures of crying toddlers and the statistics about teenage pregnancy that I hope you got a lot of money because it costs a lot of money and chances are he ain't going to be with you for the rest of your life if you choose. Yes. And I was just like all of this kind of, and so part of the policy prescription around teenage pregnancy has also been steeped in that shame. And that has impacts on how we govern, how we create policy around it, and then also how we view these human beings who are also bringing another human being into this world and continue to make them feel isolated and alone and not have the ability to walk through the world. Can you expand upon how, and God bless my grandmama, <laughs> but I mean, but this is real thing that families go through. And then it's also repeated in government and policy. Yeah. Um, so I wish that, you know, that story was a rare story. Uh, we the, the, the reaction stories, as I like to call them, around young people disclosing that they're pregnant or that they're expecting are often really traumatic. They're often horror stories, you know, where um, there's a there's a physical reaction like you saw there. Uh, there are stories of being made to stand up in the middle of your church and announce your pregnancy to the congregation and to deal with the backlash that comes from that. Uh, there are stories where you're kicked out of your family's home. So you're now pregnant, you're homeless, you don't have a high school diploma, you don't have a college degree, 
um, there are just so many things. Then there are stories where your partner isn't supportive. It, you know, if you're a young mother and you have you disclose that you're pregnant, your partner leave. Um, it, it's so heart wrenching to hear these stories. And what I try to stress in the book is how ineffective uh, shaming is. There's no good that comes out of shaming someone because of their pregnancy. It actually is counterproductive. It actually works against the things that we say we want to happen. We say we want this young person to go on and to be successful, to get their college degree, get their high school diploma or GED, and then get their post-secondary credential. Shane works totally against that. We say that we want families, uh, especially Black and Brown families, and we know that uh, teen pregnancy is more likely to happen um, in these communities. We say we want these families to experience economic mobility. Shame is working against that. Uh, we say we want these kids, these children, to come into the world and have every opportunity to thrive and succeed in their own academic and career trajectories. Shame totally works against that. Uh, and as you said, it happens at the micro level. It happens at the macro level. It's, it's happening in homes. It's happening in schools. It's happening in churches. But it's also happening around the tables where decisions are being made about policy, you know, policy that that are meant to set families up for economic mobility, to set young parents up for economic mobility. And these policies are based on that bias, are based on that shame. They're coming out of that. They're coming from many uh, racist practices. Um, and so all of that, again, works against what we say we want happening for these families. And it really requires us to take a step back and say, what are we really trying to do? Are we really trying to create uh, more opportunities for, for people to earn a post-secondary credential? Do we really want families to be economically stable and thriving? Then we have to think about how are we treating and um, supporting young families. And that conversation is not happening enough. It's not happening enough in our, in our environments, our schools, in our um, various human service systems, um, the nightmares I can tell you around people, young parents trying to go in and apply for TANF and, you know, all of these things that are meant to really remove barriers for this population is not happening. It's not happening. So it really requires a step back and a, a self-reflection about what we're using to to do this work. And, and too often we're defaulting to this shame uh, practice. And that's why we're not seeing success. We're not seeing progress forward. So let's talk a bit about what policy we should be uplifting if you are a state, if you are local government that supports those young families. A recent headline that the state of Texas, as we know, doesn't require sex education in schools. It also has some of the strictest abortion laws um, in the nation, along with Alabama. And in Texas, more than uh, one in six teens who give birth in the state, similar in Alabama, already have uh, a child. So these are the teenagers under the age of 19, I believe, or 20, who are also having multiple children as teens. And I've read stories about schools that are built up that have childcare, that have staggering classes and times to be able to support young families, as you mentioned. What are some of those policy prescriptions for those who are listening and in state legislatures or city councils or even in Congress? What should we be advocating for? What should we be doing in order to support the young parents 
parents who are already at that stage? And then what do we need to do if we say we want to prevent <laughs> a teen parenthood? Yeah. So I think you're exactly right. There's kind of two things at play here. There's the prevention side, and then there's the parent supporting those young parents in whatever career and educational endeavors that they have. I think one big myth is that the two things cannot, you cannot support both things at the same time. And you absolutely can. Um, you can say I'm a proponent of teen pregnancy prevention, and I'm also a proponent of making sure that young families have what they need to be successful. That's okay. That should be happening. So I think that's one big thing that we need to just put out on the table there. Um, on the prevention side, I like to go way back, even before we start talking about sex education in schools, access to birth control. And what I really try to stress in Pregnant Girl is that um, there's this, this uh, perception that teen pregnancy causes poverty. And what we really find from the research is that poverty causes teen pregnancy. And so if we are going to talk about prevention, we have to talk about poverty. We have to talk about making sure that there are children with the resources, the support, and all of the things that they need, and that they're not living in poverty. Things like the child tax credit. That's a great teen pregnancy prevention uh, tool in terms of policy. Um, looking at you know universal pre-K, affordable child care programs, removing barriers for families to access TANF. Um, even making sure that more moms and dads are able to get a post-secondary credential. All of those things that help families move out of poverty are teen pregnancy prevention measures. And I think we have to broaden our de definition beyond just um, are we having comprehensive sex education in the school? Then do we have access to birth control for young people? And some of the other things that we often talk about, those are important. But what we aren't talking about enough is poverty. We are talking about the role that that plays and mixed up in that is race. We are talking about um, the racist policy that keep resources out of the hands of these families in the first place. So that's a big thing that I'm hoping anybody watching is going to add to the conversations about prevention. I think on the side of how do you help young people once they have a child is, again, how do we make sure that that mother or father has access to uh, the resources, the support, and the information that they need to, one, graduate from high school or earn a GED. Less than 50% of teen moms earn a, a diploma or GED. That, that's unacceptable. And, and that percentage varies in different places. And then on the, teen, on the college completion side, less than 2% of teen mothers earn a degree before age 30. And we don't have enough data even about fathers, you know, young fathers. So there is, there's an opportunity from a policy standpoint for us to really start to think about how do we create more opportunities for parents, young parents, to actually become economically stable. That's things like free college programs, that's uh, doubling the Pell, um, that is looking at um, uh, wraparound support services uh, at the high school level, making sure that they have access to, to child care, um, making sure they have access to child care also in college. All of these things are opportunities for us at the state level and some at the federal level to really uh, be intentional about making sure that these families are successful. You know, there's a reason why I, in my language, use teenage parenthood. And that is because we've been socialized to say teen mothers, teen motherhood, that the onus and the problem is on the young girl who is, it has the visible 
right? It's very visible. You talk about that of a young person standing up in church and having to announce pregnancy. I've heard stories of young people having to be, quote, sat down in church and couldn't sing in choir anymore because they were pregnant and unmarried and things of that nature. But the focus is always on the mother, right? And it seems to me that we haven't also built in our social network ways for teenage fathers, one, to be co-parents, one, to everything is focused on them being Debbie fathers or or paying child support in that way. And not about, we talk about childcare at school for the young mom. What are we doing also in school that encourages young fathers to also be present and active um, in their children's life, whether they are, quote, with, you know, the mother or not? Is it a bring your kid and, you know, this child could hear? I know a number of single um, fathers who have custody of their children, some who were also young and navigating that. And that's difficult. And part of, I would suspect, and what you advocate for in Pregnant Girl is about bringing the teenage father into um, the story and the support as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, our focus is on family. We want to see an entire family thrive. And that includes a mother and includes a father, whether they're together or not. Um, in our direct service work, you know, we we help uh, young parents, mothers and fathers work towards their college degrees. And some are married couples. Some are co-parenting and, and working together in a relationship together. And some are single parents, uh, including single fathers. And You know, we have uh, at times been criticized even for the fact that we are not exclusively serving young mothers in that work. And my goal has always been to ensure that a family can thrive together. Um, And what we see in our program and what we see with student parents all across the country, there are so many fathers that are committed to their education, that are committed to their children, that fly in the face of the stereotypes that you just mentioned. Um, And yet there's such a dearth of programming. There's such a dearth of support. And I think, you know, what we have to acknowledge in this is that our our systems, our spaces, as you said, are not set up for fathers. They're not um, supportive of fathers. And in many cases, they're not safe spaces for fathers. When we look at Black fathers in particular and and fathers of color, you know, you're in in an education setting from a K through 12 standpoint where when there's an issue at school, the administrators are more likely to call the police than they are to call your parents or the guidance counselor. That is not an environment that that validates you, that values you, that says we care about you. It's the last place that you feel like you can disclose that maybe you're a father, that you have a child on the way, that you want help and assistance in making sure that you get your, your high school credential. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do, and I think we're even seeing this play out in higher education. Everyone has seen the headlines around college enrollment and the decline that's happening there within the past two years. Um, we're losing males at an alarming rate, and we know that student parents, and including student fathers, are more likely to consider dropping out um, than, than non-parenting students and then than even other student parents. So we have a real crisis. That's a real crisis where... Um, Men and and young men are not getting the supports that they need in general, Uh, but certainly when you add parenting responsibilities on top of that, there is is no support. And we have to really name that in our various systems, in our education spaces, and do something about it. 
So what, in your view, um, for those who are just normal individuals listening and normal people who are non-elected, they're not congressional, they're not in state assembly, they are not, they don't, they're not in positions that would allow them to make these policy decisions. What is the civic action steps that those who are listening, who agree with you, agree that we need to provide additional supports, agree in the duality of supporting prevention and also supporting young families. What are some things you would suggest that they do to advocate uh, for these issues? Absolutely. Uh, there's a ton of things that you can do. And, and uh, hey, I'm a normal person, right? Like I'm not an elected official. And so there are a ton of things that you can do. I think one big thing that we can all do, no matter what your title, position, you know, any of those things is help to change the narrative around teen pregnancy. Um, it is so stigmatizing. It is so negative. We all have the opportunity when someone is talking about an issue and they, and they directly say something negative about teen parents, that they're not worthy of resources, uh, they make an, a, a judgment or an assumption, there's an opportunity for us to say, hey, wait a minute. I want to I want to give you some statistics. I want to help you understand this a bit more. Uh, they're capable. They're worthy of support. They're deserving. I also think there are times where we're talking about issues that impact this population, but we never name them. You know, if we're talking about affordable housing, if we're talking about college completion efforts, if we're talking about changes that we want to make in our schools, that's an opportunity to say, wait a minute, are we thinking about teen parents? Are we thinking about young mothers and young fathers? Are we thinking about parenting college students? Most people have no idea that parenting college students make up a significant portion of our undergrad population. It's one in five college students is parenting. It's almost half of all Black female undergraduates across the country. So there's an opportunity to say, mm, we're talking about free college. Um, have we talked about what this means for student parents? And, and we all have the ability to do that in our churches and in just general conversation and in our school systems. That's something we can all do. But I think, too, as we've laid out and talked about some of these policies that could really move the needle for this population, we can all rally around those policies. We can write to our legislators. We can uh, talk at the town hall meetings about why this, this policy is important. Uh, we can vote. You know, we can do all of those things to try to make those policies a reality. Um, to really make sure that this population has everything that they need to be successful. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. So, you know, folks can get the book and read. I, I encourage you to read it. I read, you saw my little markings. I, and, and apologize to those who are purists who are like, oh, you broke the spine and wrote milk for the book. <laughs> yeah, I love people do that. I love it. Yes, I did. Because <laughs> it's mine now. And I can do that. But what, what are some other things as people give you an opportunity to pitch on why they should get pregnant girl? Besides what we discussed already, what are some other things that are uplifted in the book? Oh, gosh. Well, one big thing is that it's it's a memoir and, and it's it's my own story of, of experience a teen, experiencing a teen pregnancy and putting myself through college. And it's very personal. Um, I wanted to write a book that I would want to read. And so I very much take you on the journey with me, the journey from before my pregnancy, kind of everything that led up to that, the journey of discovering my pregnancy, um, also the tumultuous relationship that I was in with my daughter's father, including 
um, experiencing domestic violence, um, sleeping in my car in the high school parking lot when we didn't have a place to go. I mean, there's so many things. And I think that was really important to me that the book invited people in um, to walk alongside in that journey so that when I did talk about the statistics and the larger context for what was happening and what is happening, there was that personal journey that I was taking you on so that you could feel it and experience it. And I've heard from so many readers that the book just resonated with them, even if they never experienced a teen pregnancy. There's something in the book. There's love. There's um, disappointment. There's triumph. Um, there's courage. There's like all of those universal things that you're, you're, you can connect with. And I, I really wanted to be vulnerable and open and transparent in telling the story because I think that's what creates connections. That's what brings people in. And that's what makes us all say, you know what? I want to do something about this. So it is very much a journey um, and, and an intimate account of my experience. Well, Nicole, thank you so very much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, I hope you'll be back. We could talk about some other things, particularly when there's, you know, federal legislation on families and other things that we can uplift and take action on. I really appreciate you taking the time. I would love that. Thanks for having me. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me, of me? How could you see your life was the only gift I left for me? Thank you to Nicole Lynn Lewis for joining us and sharing that amazing story. I definitely recommend you pick up her book and read the story or get the audiobook and listen to the story. Just before we go, before we close out, I want to bring another voice to the front of the class. We heard the inspiring words from soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. And <clears throat> a lot was brought up about her love of country, her love of the law, um, her having a background and a career um, that is truly um, an example of the absolute best of us. And when I was on Clay Kane's show earlier this week, we talked about, you know, folks like me who have that duality of while loving this country to a certain extent, but still fighting for it to live up to its promise, it can be difficult. And it also reminded me of a black woman who is lifted up in my life as well. This one from 1976, uh, from the first African-American since reconstruction to be elected to the Texas Senate and the first black female from the South to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. I am talking about uh, the inspiring and powerful words from Barbara Jordan, the first black woman to deliver a keynote speech at a Democratic National Convention from Texas. Take a listen. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for a very warm reception. There is something special about tonight. 
What is different? What is special? I, Barbara Jordan, am a keynote speaker. A lot of years passed since 1832, and during that time, it would have been most unusual for any national political party to ask a Barbara Jordan to deliver a keynote address. But tonight, here I am. And I feel... I feel that notwithstanding the past, that my presence here is one additional bit of evidence that the American dream need not forever be deferred. I have this grand distinction, what in the world am I supposed to say? I could easily spend this time praising the accomplishments of this party and attacking the Republicans, but I don't choose to do that. I could list the many problems which Americans have. I could list the problems which cause people to feel cynical, angry, frustrated. Problems which include lack of integrity in government, the feeling that the individual no longer counts, the reality of material and spiritual poverty, the feeling that the grand American experiment is failing or has failed. I could recite these problems and then I could sit down and offer no solutions. But I don't choose to do that either. The citizens of America expect more, deserve and they want more than a recital of problems. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. We are a people in search of a national community. We are a people trying not only to solve the problems of the present, unemployment, inflation, but we are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are attempting to fulfill our national purpose to create and sustain a society in which all of us are equal. Throughout our history, when people have looked for new ways to solve their problems and to uphold the principles of this nation, many times they have turned to political parties. They have often turned to the Democratic Party. What is it? What is it about the Democratic Party that makes it the instrument the people use when they search for ways to shape their future? Well, I believe the answer to that question lies in our concept of governing. Our concept of governing is derived from our view of people. It is a concept deeply rooted in a set of beliefs firmly etched in the national conscience of all of us. Now, what are these beliefs? First, we believe 
in equality for all and privileges for none. This is a belief, this is a belief that each American, regardless of background, has equal standing in the public forum, all of us. Because we believe this idea so firmly, we are an inclusive rather than an exclusive party. Let everybody come. I think it no accident that most of those immigrating to America in the 19th century identified with the Democratic Party. We are a heterogeneous party made up of Americans of diverse backgrounds. We believe that the people are the source of all governmental power, that the authority of the people is to be extended, not restricted. This can be accomplished only by providing each citizen with every opportunity to participate in the management of the government. They must have that. We believe. We believe that the government which represents the authority of all the people, not just one interest group but all the people, has an obligation to actively, underscore actively, seek to remove those obstacles which would block individual achievement, obstacles emanating from race, sex, economic condition. The government must remove them, seek to remove them. We, we are a party we are a party of innovation. We do not reject our traditions, but we are willing to adapt to changing circumstances when change we must. We are willing to suffer the discomfort of change in order to achieve a better future. We have a positive vision of the future founded on the belief that the gap between the promise and reality of America can one day be finally closed. We believe that. This, my friends, is the bedrock of our concept of governing. This is a part of the reason why Americans have turned to the Democratic Party. These are the foundations upon which a national community can be built. Let all understand that these guiding principles cannot be discarded for short-term political gains. They represent what this country is all about. They are indigenous to the American idea, and these are principles which are not negotiable. Thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. 